And now, Manufacturing Matters with your host, Cliff Waldman. Good day, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Manufacturing Matters. I'm Cliff Waldman. I'm your host for this weekly show on Manufacturing Talk Radio. This is the show where we think about all things manufacturing. Of course, we think about the headlines, the economic and the political headlines. They matter a great deal to U.S. manufacturing performance and to the health of our U.S. manufacturing companies. But in this day and age of technological change, of geopolitical upheaval, we have to go deeper. And the key word here is new, new science, new technology, new markets, new geopolitical arrangements. And we are here to help our audience understand how all those things are going to contribute to a new day in U.S. manufacturing. I continue to promise, and I will make this promise every week, that our guests are going to be the best in their field, top economists as we have today knowledgeable scientists, prolific authors, people who have seen manufacturing around the world and can talk from a global perspective. All of those people are going to come on, have been coming on, to give us the best knowledge and the best insight that we can get. I'm sure you'll agree that U.S. manufacturing deserves no, uh, no less. Today, we are going to be talking about an area that we should have probably talked about a while ago, the critical matter of energy. Energy, of course, is a critical input for manufacturing, and it's becoming, as we will discuss, an increasingly critical output. And I am delighted to welcome Dean Foreman to our show. He is one of Washington's top energy experts. He is chief economist for the American Petroleum Institute. He earned his doctorate in economics from the University of Florida, and he brings decades of industry experience in corporate strategic planning, forecasting, risk management, and finance. As as, um, most of you know, I'm serving as president of the National Economist Club this year. Dean made an appearance a couple weeks ago to a packed room. And the one thing I told our audience about, I'm going to tell this audience about, is that he has the rare talent to uh, mix economic thinking with business thinking, and he does it almost seamlessly. Before joining API, Dr. Foreman was the lead economist for ExxonMobil corporate planning between 2002 and 2008. From 2009 to 2013, he was a member of the executive team at Canadian-based exploration and production company Talisman Energy. There he focused on corporate planning, on hedging and marketing, and on business development. From 2013 to 2015, he directed the risk management function in North America for South African energy and petrochemical conglomerate where he helped drive business cases for $25 billion in U.S. mega projects, including the $11 billion ethane cracker and derivatives complex in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Most recently, he was with the Saudi Aramco strategy and market analysis in Tehran, where he managed short-term market monitoring 
and the long-term oil demand outlook. We could not get a more knowledgeable energy expert. Dean, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. That's a really kind introduction. Thank you, Cliff. Yeah, Dean, well, let me start off with uh, with kind of a basic question. When I was getting my economics training in school, undergraduate and graduate, we always learned that falling oil prices were a good thing. They were, in effect, a tax cut for the economy. But that psychological relationship and perhaps real relationship has, seems to have changed since the economic crisis. The stock market used to react positively to a fall in oil prices. But in recent years, an oil price decline has been taken in as a negative for the overall U.S. economic outlook. Do you think this reflects a change in the energy economics of the American economy? Well, there are really two pieces to it, Cliff. Part of it is a change in the economic mix. And with the U.S. energy revolution that's occurred over the last decade, the U.S. economy, especially certain producing regions, are increasingly uh, seeing their growth related to oil and gas output, the infrastructure that goes with it, and frankly, the manufacturing that's downstream and, and put on top of that. And here's an example. Since 2015, um, you know, our industry, uh, depending upon how you define it, with or without petrochemicals in it, is at most 8% of the entire economy. But on a quarterly basis, if we look at the correlation between real GDP growth for the United States and the change in the total output of oil, natural gas, and natural gas liquids, there is a almost one-to-one correlation between those since 2015 on a quarterly basis, growth to growth or change to change. And that's a really compelling story that how can something that's only 8% of the entire economy correlate so strongly and positively with overall growth in the United States? It's happening because this industry, the energy industry, is foundational. It's one of the very best things that go, that's going on in the U.S. economy. Now, it doesn't tell you the direction of causality. It tells you its correlation. And in fact, you would probably be inclined to say that you just don't get growth without having energy to supply it. And really, that's it is also the fact that there are certain regions of the U.S. now which the growth is actually derived from the oil and gas, natural gas, liquids, and infrastructure that are going with it. So that's the physical side of it. And then there's a financial side of it on top of it where at least – in recent years, with the uprise of China, we've seen where commodities and oil in particular tend to correlate as risk on or risk off for the global economy. So coupled with the actual change in the fundamentals of the U.S. economy, we have a change really in financial markets where people are viewing this as a bet that they can place, whether um, you know, it's directional for a good direction for growth for commodities and the prices that go with those. And when you put it all together, it means that energy is really foundational to the global economy, the global financial markets, and that's why it's all tied together. Boy, every time I have a guest on lately, I feel like we're two people on a ride on a very bumpy road. So let's let's look just a little bit down that road. I'm going to ask you, in light of slowing global growth, Persistent trade frictions, and as of late, escalating tensions with Iran. What is your short-term 
of industry fundamentals? Well, well, as APIs, the Trade Association isn't permitted to predict the price. We can talk about those fundamentals in terms of supply and demand and growth. And the thing that sticks out the most is that the supply growth globally, but especially from the United States, has been phenomenal. And to put that in context, in 2018, the U.S. brought between oil, uh, natural gas liquids, total liquids, the addition in 2018 was on the order of 2.4 million barrels per day. That's the most that any nation has ever added in a single year in the whole history of energy. So it's really phenomenal how much that's been transitioning. And now we look at these tensions and say, well, we've got trade frictions uh, on the margin. This is slowing global growth. There's no question about it. But it's not dropping off a cliff. And if we look over consistently over the last few years, what we see is that if we take an estimate of global growth on a market exchange rate basis, let's say you know, a little over 3% last year, divide by two, that 1.5% is roughly in million barrels per day, the amount of oil demand growth that we've seen globally. And that's going to likely hold again this year. So if we slow, and the, the International Energy Agency, the IEA, just lowered their outlook to 1.2 million barrels per day of oil growth globally for 2019, give or take a little bit, that's probably that on par where you're basically dividing the growth estimate by two. And that is the important message is that this inextricable link between human and economic development, what's happening with the global economy and the progress that's being made in terms of um, you know, everything from health to education to moving up uh, the income chain and consumption, all of that is keyed and energy is absolutely central to it. So now we go to tensions like Iran, and you know, there's no question that if, if you get a war-like scenario that this would boost prices at least temporarily, and the frictions in the Strait of Hormuz at least temporarily seem to boost things, and then it's calmed. And whereas this last week where we've seen oil prices move up a bit, it's more because uh, the read that was getting pessimistic on demand actually looks stronger as you have some inventory draws. So the first order impact really is how is demand and the economy holding up and the geopolitical second geopolitical scenarios are somewhat secondary at this point. We'll see how it goes and how it plays out, but those high impact but low probability scenarios, you don't usually plan around those. You have contingencies for what if, and Saudi Arabia, for example, has indicated that transport through the Red Sea. There are ways of working around if the Strait of Hormuz becomes an issue. So again, stay the course, but really looking at the economic numbers, that's what we see as foundational to the growth, and it looks good right now. Let's let's bring volatile concerns down to the factory floor. An increasing share of domestic U.S. manufacturing output is accounted for by energy. Do you worry, in light of the, of the conversation that we've been having, that this puts U.S. manufacturing somewhat or more at the mercy of volatile global and, I might add, natural forces that can significantly impact spot prices? Manufacturing has a lot of global volatility in it, but if it's now somewhat more energy-oriented, more output coming from energy – then you have more volatility there because there's so much that can just quickly impact spot oil prices. Is that a worry for the manufacturing sector? Well, the manufacturing sector and petrochemicals in particular have voiced this kind of concern for numerous years, including opposition to exporting crude oil in the first place. And for a long time, the U.S.'s 
export refined products, but up until a few years ago, there'd been a ban on crude oil exports. And what we've seen with record exports now of crude oil, of natural gas, of natural gas, gas liquids like ethane and propane, is that we've got prices that are lower and price volatility that's literally been cut in half compared with 2014 or earlier as we've continued to have this cushion provided by growing domestic production. So, look, you can't say that in a short period. There may be short periods where you know, there's a sudden increase in exports and prices go with it. But when we're looking over a longer period of months to years, what we're seeing is each of these developments, whether it's oil, natural gas, or natural gas liquids, is bringing incremental new production on stream in the U.S. That's new jobs, new economic growth, new resource development. An object lesson for that, or a perfect example, would be the Haynesville area in Louisiana and East Texas, where it's predominantly in production, dry natural gas, not a lot of liquids. And as it was developed, it was projected uh, in the late 2000s and by 2010 to really become the largest natural gas production area in the United States, or at least one of the top two or three. Well, with the downturn in natural gas prices domestically in 2012, it got eviscerated in terms of activity. It, it went through quite a pullback. But with the growth of liquefied natural gas exports in the last few years, it's come back with a boom. It's just been resilient beyond belief. And it's a tremendous uh, story and example of just how much growth can come and productivity can rise when we have those exports feeding that growth. So in this case, the other thing that, that petrochemical companies in particular had taken uh, exception to was that they were concerned that prices of ethane and propane would rise as we had LNG exports. And what we've seen is that as you export the natural gas, it has to be dry gas, and there's been a need to take any liquids that are in there out of it. So substantially, we've seen an increase in natural gas liquid supplies, ethane, propane, butane, and field natural gasoline, as LNG exports have also risen. And that, in turn, has helped the manufacturing base in the U.S. So overall, I would say this cushion by domestic production is really helping manufacturing. It's why we've seen a lot of energy-intensive manufacturing coming back to the United States. It's been an investment boom, not just on the Gulf Coast, but through the Midwest and a lot of other parts, Pennsylvania, Ohio, as they've become major natural gas producing areas. It's an exciting time for energy, for petrochemicals, and manufacturing. You know, if there's one variable that I dealt with in my years dealing with manufacturing executives more than any other, it's the dollar. Now, commentators have noted an apparent inverse relationship between movements in the dollar and oil prices. We certainly saw this in 2014 and 2015. I think, I think of 2014 in two ways, a slide in oil prices, what can only be described as a slide in, in spot oil prices, and a rise, a significant rise in the dollar. As of late, an elevated dollar has been accompanied by a fall in spot prices. Can you give us some insight and analysis on the dollar-oil price relationship? It's a great question, Cliff, and it is a relationship that it has grown stronger in recent years, and it became more apparent in the 2000s where you had a lot of petrocurrencies. You had production in places like you know, Russia and Brazil and Canada and Australia, where as this continues 
and the, the commodity complex continues to grow, the commodity value, the need to hold those currencies for production, it was going in relation uh, to the commodity prices into those currencies vis-a-vis -vis the dollar. Now, in recent years, it, the last few years, we still see this inverse relationship. And it's as much, to the extent that commodities are risk on and risk off, there is an aspect of the dollar as a safe haven, and you start to see that, that trade-off uh, come to a head. But more importantly, as most commodities, and especially oil, are priced globally in U.S. dollars, you, this correlation doesn't tell you the direction of causality. You have to back up and say, well, why does that work? And when you take oil, for example, Brent crude oil priced in U.S. dollars, as the dollar gets toward a 10-year high, which it is currently, it's very close. You know, effectively, that makes oil in uh, equivalent purchasing terms globally relatively less expensive for the U.S. or imported goods uh, less expensive as the dollar goes further. But conversely, it makes it rel that oil relatively more expensive in lo local currency terms for economies around the globe whose currencies have depreciated vis-a-vis -vis the dollar. So what that means then is that you, in supply-demand fundamentals, you have to expect some sort of demand reaction to that, where you would expect that would tamp down demand growth. What's interesting is that the income effect rather than the price effect has been the dominant one for oil and for a lot of commodities in recent years. And we've started, despite the fact that the price in local currency terms may be relatively higher, we start, we've continued to see uh, through Asia-Pacific with still solid, if not stellar, uh, economic growth that the oil demand growth is continuing. Let's move into some structural, longer-term issues. Climate change concerns and other things have been motivating an accelerating look at what is normally known as alternative energy sources. Let me let me push the uh, push the envelope here. Do you foresee alternative energy such as wind and solar? solar, excuse me, becoming a significant part of the U.S. energy picture? Absolutely. They already are to a large extent in the power sector, and you've got numerous states that are advancing renewable portfolio standards, clean energy standards, things that are continuing to push renewables, nuclear, you know, other low or zero carbon sources into the energy mix. So they're integral. Now, the issue is that there are natural limits to that right now where economic li limits in terms of natural cost and for ele an electricity grid, how interconnected it can be and what percentage of renewables you can push in given, given the natural intermittency of some of these sources. So if the wind's not blowing, the sun's not shining, or if it's not intense enough to really make a difference, you still need something else that helps stabilize that grid. And natural gas has been the easiest to permit and build, the quickest to build, and the most economic in recent years. And that's why we've seen natural gas grow to a third or more of U.S. electricity production. But it's an all-of-the-above strategy to you know, quote the past administration in terms of what we need for energy, where there's a role for everything. And especially globally, natural gas is continuing to uh, assume that mantle and help us reduce CO2 emissions in the process. The reason the U.S. has been able to lead the world in CO2 reductions in these last several years is really because natural gas has grown and supplanted coal in the power sector. So it is largely a power sector story, and we have to have an honest discussion about how far we can go with that, um, whether battery storage is an effective, and even in the long run, battery storage, for example, in the power sector could supplant the need for new generation. But it's 
viewed even with continued improvement to be an order of magnitude more expensive than natural gas fire generation. So keeping it in context with an honest discussion, a level playing field about the relative costs, that uh, is a good mix where wind and solar and alternative energy are vitally important in the mix, but so are the fossil fuels. Well, uh, generally speaking, for both from public and private sources, are we are we doing enough energy related R and D? Is there is there enough research and development on on the energy complex as a whole, or do you think we need to push that a little bit? Well, we definitely need to have fundamental research that continues. And when technologies are nascent, there's a role for publicly supporting them to make sure they take off. The issue becomes, and at least from an API and an oil and gas perspective, we, we start to say, well, what are, the, again, the natural limits where you want a level playing field so that resources are allocated properly and good economic decisions are made? Electric vehicles are a pretty good example of that, where it's accelerated so far based on having a lot of subsidies and people don't really know when those the tax support in terms of tax credits or um, it, other benefits that come by virtue of that monetary and other uh, when the, when those are peeled back and it's not scalable to a larger extent it's less apparent exactly how much underlying demand there is so you you really need to know that and not just push it forward blindly when you can't scale those benefits and costs to an entire population uh, not to pick on electric vehicles, but it's a really fine example where the average household income of those buying electric vehicles in the United States tends to be $100,000 or more, and depending upon the model, it can be closer to $200,000. And that really resonates with people that they don't like the idea of subsidizing the affluent. It's, it's uneconomic. It's bad policy. So we really need to get something that aligns the economic incentives with good policy and makes good economic decisions that are benefiting frankly, the wider swath of people in the United States at the same time. Let's finish our discussion with two questions about that specifically address manufacturing, U.S. manufacturing energy use. Let me ask you, how is the rapid and widespread implementation of many automation-related automation related technologies on the factory floor going to impact the energy use picture in U.S. manufacturing? Well, there's a labor capital trade-off. You know, to the extent you're using more machinery and it requires power and uh, other inputs compared with labor, uh, you know, net-net, that would be more energy. But at the same time, you're also getting greater efficiency and productivity at the same time. So your energy per unit, your intensity of that energy continues to fall. And that's that efficiency and productivity story that really should be the dominant factor in reinforcing U.S. competitiveness, manufacturing competitiveness, and to tie it back to the dollar and the things we were talking about earlier. You know, basically being able to position despite headwinds like a strong U.S. dollar, which can make U.S. exports less competitive globally, being able to to grow that requires having cost-effective energy. As I travel and speak in many um, infrastructure states and manufacturing intensive states, especially across the Midwest United States, it's really apparent that from agribusiness to manufacturing, uh, labor interests, you know, there's a lot of alignment in understanding how our fates are tied together in terms of the challenges that we share here. And frankly, if you get more automation, more technology, that is phenomenal for the future of the U.S., both in terms of its domestic growth and its export competitiveness. So it, 
we're strongly in favor of that and, and energy efficiency to go with it. We just need to continue the trend, which requires infrastructure, requires investment in the ability to export these things. And frankly, it also requires free markets and solving some of the trade frictions that have emerged. Final question. What in your thinking are the elements of a smart, quote-unquote, smart energy program for the U.S. manufacturing sector? Specifically, what do you recommend with regards to energy efficiency for U.S. manufacturers? Well, it, it depends on the segment of manufacturing. Some endemically must have either uh, – you know, a liquid fuel input or they, they need electricity and making sure that you can procure that and have uh, redundancy and variety of sources so that you're b both taking a look at short-term dynamics of where the source is coming from, what redundancy you have from a risk management standpoint, and making sure it's cost-effective and that you control your fate to a certain extent. So where those things come together is looking at the pattern of how you know, the very first question you asked, Cliff, was about, you know, how is the economy changing? And when you understand that, you know, for example, in Ohio and Pennsylvania, that they've gone from being an energy deficit to being the largest uh, natural gas producers in the U.S. and have completely reversed the flow of natural gas through pipeline infrastructure all the way back to the U.S. Gulf Coast, pushing out Canadian gas. As those dynamics play out, manufacturing has taken notice. And it doesn't happen overnight because if you're going to manufacture and you know, put in a petrochemical plant in Pennsylvania or Ohio, you have to have market for it. And that means either domestic market with good ties and, and looking at what your, your strategy would be. The advantage feedstock will help you, but you also have to have the tie all the way into how you're going to place the product. So it's that comprehensive understanding of starting with what can the advantage feedstock or the advantage electricity production where it's gone down, uh, excuse me, electricity prices have gone down on a nationwide scale where natural gas has been utilized more, where you can take advantage of that and get a sustained competitive advantage as an export facility or in domestic production by virtue of that advantage energy. It's that holistic view that will really help U.S. manufacturers. So that coupled with being able to understand what you need in terms of logistics and markets and tying it all together. I think that's a winning recipe for U.S. manufacturing. Dean Foreman, you gave us your time. You gave us your expertise. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Cliff. I always enjoy talking with you. It's really insightful, the questions you ask. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, this was the first big show we've had on energy. It won't be the last. It's too critical. It ties in with technology, and energy and technology tie in with global forces, which are volatile these days. We are looking forward to many more episodes on this whole complex of issues. Until then, this is Cliff Waldman reminding you that manufacturing matters, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.